This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay Lusher-Shoot. On October 1st, the Farm Bill expired. And while some programs are extended, others are not. To find out what it all means, I spoke with USDA economist Anne Eflin. Anne shares the historical context for Farm Bill programs and explains what's at stake if nothing's passed by December 31st. But first, I had to call up our guy on the ground, Andrew Berenberg in D.C. Andrew and I talk about what might happen with the Farm Bill if the House flips over to the Democrats and the current state of negotiations. Hi, I'm Riston Mays, farmer at the lovely Phillies Bridge Farm Project in New Paltz, New York, and organizer with the Hudson Valley Young Farmers Coalition. I joined the National Young Farmers Coalition because I want beginning farmers like myself to have access to resources and a support network as we work to become stewards of the land in our communities. We have to support each other, so for $35 a year, you can also join NYFC. By joining, you can also get discounts like 10% off Johnny's Selected Seeds and 10% off Haas Tools. To join, go to youngfarmers.org. Much love and reparations now. The Farm Bill expired as of October 1st. We have no current Farm Bill. What does that mean? Well, um, this has happened before. Um, What it means depends on the program itself. So the biggest programs in the Farm Bill, typically your SNAP or food stamps, crop insurance, most commodity programs, um, and one conservation program, which we'll get to in a second, basically are large enough that they have their own inertia and are fully or almost completely operational. That's at least true um, through the rest of this calendar year. The second category um, are the programs that do have funding in this fiscal year, but they lack the authority to actually continue running. Then there's a third category, and this is probably the most important for young farmers, um, and that's your so-called stranded programs. Now, these are smaller programs that are funded in small enough amounts, uh, still in the millions of dollars, of course, we're talking about, it's all relative when we're talking about federal spending, but that now currently have no funding, no authorization, and effectively have had the lights turned off on October 1st and and beyond until they are expressly funded in a new farm bill. Examples of those programs, um, the Farmers Market Promotion Program, Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development, um, Outreach and Assistance to Socially Disadvantaged Farmers, Double Up Food Bucks Program that that makes um, food stamps eligible and more effective at, at farmers markets, um, value-added producer grants. Like a lot of these programs are either directly or indirectly benefiting young and beginning farmers. And those are the programs that simply don't exist in this, in this weird non-farm bill limbo period. And what is the state of negotiations right now? Well, that sort of depends on um, the day and and who you ask. I will say this. Congress has left town for the time being until after the midterm elections. Um, So they've either, they've they've all left town to hit the campaign trail. However, staff for those members, the committee staff, continue to meet basically every day around the clock to try and continue these negotiations to move them forward to get 
as many things as they can to a place where once those bigger sticking points fall into place, everything else is ready to go, right? So the big things, of course, um, you know, SNAP work requirements has been, has gotten the most attention and has been one of the biggest sticking points. Um, but certain conservation issues, um, the proposed uh, merger in the House bill between the two largest working lands conservation programs, EQIP and CSP, has been a major sticking point and one that we've engaged in on a lot. Even some like commodity programs, Title I, the, those are the big ticket items that will really only be decided by, um, by those top four um, members of Congress. And, af- and, that, and after the election. And after the election, right. And Andrew, how much does this November election, how much is that going to impact like the outcome of the farm bill? So if the House flips um, as of next year to Democrats, how is that going to impact negotiations? It's kind of a guessing game, to be honest. Um, I'd say the conventional wisdom is still that Democrats, if narrowly, do take the House. Um, I, I think most people are expecting a pretty status quo Senate. Republicans will retain their majority there. What's confounding that conventional wisdom a little bit is this is a really tenuous time for agriculture generally and for farmers specifically, given that commodity prices are where they are and are not expected to rebound in 2019, um, given that no one really knows where this trade war is going to end up. But either way, even if it were resolved tomorrow, I think would leave lasting damage on um, especially commodity farmers who rely on those export markets. It's not a guarantee that a Democratic House necessarily wants to be the ones to have to rewrite an entirely new farm bill in that context, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when the Senate has a farm bill that was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Um, So, But do you think if if the Democrats had been in the majority in writing the farm bill that they're debating right now, do you think it would have been different? I think, I mean, obviously that there's no question the House bill would have been a lot different, especially because before that bill was introduced, they were negotiating pretty closely, um, and that might have looked like a more bipartisan bill. But because Republican leadership dug in pretty hard on um, what they wanted to do with SNAP food stamps program, um, that caused Democrats to basically leave the negotiating table. And so when that happens, you know, all of the kind of bipartisan stuff, you know, just goes into the scrap heap. And then you get what looks like a much more partisan bill at that point. Oh, so the House was taking a much more bipartisan approach before the SNAP work requirements became such a, a big part of, of the House package. Yeah, I mean, they were at least negotiating. The rep- I was listening to some analysis last night that it's possible that the Republicans could, in fact, have a, gr- a wider majority in the Senate. So I guess in this on the Senate side, Roberts would, I guess, have a more even more powerful negotiating position. But then he would have to take into account positions and policies led by Democrats from the House. Yeah. um, It is not a guarantee that Democrats take the House. 
that's one thing. The the other is that for the most part, even if you know the House flips to Democrats, you know Senate maybe Republicans add a seat or two, maybe not. It's still going to be the same four people in the room negotiating, right? It, it's like it'll still be Senators Roberts and Stabenow negotiating on the Senate side of the table, and it could very well be the same two House members on the on the House side. And Andrew, why why is it that you think de- the Dems and the House wouldn't want to lead another farm bill process given the current farm crisis, um, the double crisis of uh, prices being so low or uh, net farm income being so low and the tariff situation? I think, you know, one issue is that even if Democrats were to control, control, you know, every level of power here, everyone's more or less still working with the same budget and political climate. Right. And so and especially after um, the, the so-called Trump tax cuts were passed this year, the federal deficit has like absolutely ballooned. I think especially as things continue to get worse, I don't think either party wants to be the ones in power to say, sorry, we know you're hurting, um, but this is as much you know, trade aid as we could possibly give you. Because they just there's not much they can do. Um, without additional financial resources. It would be, it's, I will not say it's impossible. Um, you know, it's not as though we had, we had money lying around to pass a, you know, trillion dollar tax cut either, right? So like where, where there's political will, there's always the ability to spend more money. But, mm. you know, I just think that, that Democrats in control of the House facing a Republican Senate aren't necessarily going to feel that compelled to, scrap the entire farm bill that's been negotiated up to this point and rewrite a whole new one. Well, Andrew, we will be following it and following up with you as negotiations continue and certainly after the election to hear what people are saying about how how that's going to change the scenario. Of course, these stranded programs that are so important um, that are oftentimes the programs that our members interact with the most we're going to be keeping close track there, too. So thank you. And um, can't wait. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Andrew. Now on to my conversation with Anne. I'm Anne Esland, and I am a senior economist in the Office of the Chief Economist at USDA. And my I specialize in working on domestic policy. And you also are a historian with USDA? Well, I am a historian, an agricultural historian, and I started at USDA as a historian uh, and have since sort of retooled as an economist, but I still do quite a bit of um, ag history uh, work. So, yes. So I would I'd love to just talk about the farm bill as an instrument for policy. When the Congress is passing a farm bill um, every five or so years, they're actually amending previous farm bills. Um, can you can you talk about the the structure of like what is actually going into a farm bill and like what that underlying legislation is? Yeah, so the the farm bill it, it happens every five years. It's sort of a convention. These things can be done in different ways if there's a desire to do that. So we have had legislation that 
um, can change farm bill provisions in the middle. For example, the end of the tobacco program came uh, as part of some other legislation and and no longer was active, even though it had been authorized in the farm bill. So there's all kinds of overlapping authorizations that happen through legislation. But the way the farm bill is set up, beginning in 1973, they created this omnibus farm legislation. Before that, there were separate uh, laws that governed uh, programs for different commodities and different types of um, programs that are now under this omnibus bill. And that's when the food stamps came in and um, rural development and some others that had been um, dealt with separately in the past. But the commodity programs um, have a provision. What they do is suspend what's called permanent law, which are provisions from the 1938 Agricultural Adjustment Act and the Agriculture Act of 1949. They cover um, different commodities under those uh, those acts and different programs for commodities. And so those are set up as permanent law uh, so that if a farm bill uh, runs out, that is for these commodity programs, it runs out at the end of that uh, crop year. If they run out, then the permanent law um, kicks in. Could you just explain this concept of permanent law? It's considered permanent law because it's never been repealed. So it doesn't get repealed in a farm bill. You, you could end, we do in cases, some cases, you just end the program. It's been repealed. It no longer exists. And then you begin a new program. But in this case, these, these old programs are not repealed. They're left on the books. And the new farm bill is written as a suspension of those laws. So as long as the new farm bill is in place, those old laws are suspended. They're no longer active. But when the new farm bill runs out, those become the law of the land again. So the suspension ends and those become the the provisions for those programs. So rather than like getting out a new piece of paper, they just keep like scratching. <laughs> they just keep going, <laughs> well, can, right? I mean, right. Well, I mean, it does it does force a consideration of new farm policy. Because there's a the threat that you might go back to somebody's idea in 1938. Yeah, because if you go back to those um, old farm bills, they include um, a concept called parity-based support that essentially like a purchasing power equivalent for commodity prices. So, for example, the parity-based support price for milk would be $39 a hundredweight. And the current Which some dairy farmers the, would probably yeah. appreciate right now. <laughs> right. No, that's right. That's right. But it would be quite expensive. Right. So um, th- these are um, uh, provisions that that kind of force Congress to reconsider and and pass new policy every five years when the farm bill ex- expires. So can the parity based support? Could you just tell me like what that program was? Why was it developed in 1938? Uh, so this is essentially based in the Great Depression. Uh, farmers in particular had been in essentially in depression for 10 years by the time it hit the rest of the economy. They had had relatively high prices just before and in and during World War One when there was high demand for U.S. production. And then at the end of the war, that demand sort of dried up. So uh, prices fell pretty, uh, very precipitously. I mean, 
$2 wheat down into the less than a dollar and cotton from uh, down into the single cents per pound. So it was really severe shock to the agriculture system. And so they there were foreclosures, there was debt, um, there was credit involved in expanding to meet that demand. And then in some ways, like the 1980s, for people who are familiar with the farm financial crisis of the 1980s. And so when the depression sort of hit the whole country, they set up a, a program to address the problems in the farm economy. And what that did was um, this parity price concept was to reestablish farm prices, commodity prices, to match um, their value, essentially, in that pre-World War II period. I see. When they were relatively high. So what a hundred weight of milk would have bought, I think it's 09 to 14, the price would be set to purchase that same amount of inputs and household goods that you could have done in that earlier period. And that price, I assume, is adjusted to inflation. Right. Well, I mean, what you could purchase in 1909 with a hundred weight of milk now has a value of essentially $39. So you need to get $39 for your hundred weight of milk to equal what that a hundred weight of milk's value would have purchased in that earlier period. I see. So that's how that happens. And actually, um, the Department of Agriculture is required to continue to calculate those parity prices because this permanent legislation exists. And so this is the law, the, This and that's the 1938 Agricultural Adjustment Act, which I guess makes sense, uh, given, given parity pricing. So this is the law that would go into place if a farm bill isn't passed by December 31st. Is, is that right? Well, it depends on the commodity. And I, I think it's you know highly unlikely that this would, would happen. And recently, the USDA or the federal government has been also purchasing milk to respond to the, the tariffs. Those are, are programs that, that buy commodities for the use of nutrition programs. Uh, basically, they purchase cheese, and um, I think they're about to purchase some fluid milk. When prices are relatively low... It's a good opportunity to purchase. It's a sort of a, a combination of uh, keeping track of how the commodity prices are going and what nutrition programs need. So Ag Marketing Service will purchase those commodities they put out. It's not at a set base price like this. But essentially, they buy commodities at the market price and then donate them for use in nutrition programs. So it's, quite, it's actually quite different from a price support program. Now that, you know, this, the clock is ticking and we have an election upon us, and is there a team at USDA that is sort of trying to sort all this out? Should we not have a farm bill on January 1st? I mean, the assumption is, of course, yes, we're going to, but is there is there some requirement like someone somewhere is calculating what this price of milk should be is there also some team somewhere figuring out how we do 1938 policy? Well, yeah, I mean, the department's legally obligated to be prepared for that. But ordinarily, if it's not possible to get a farm bill within the needed time, there would be an extension that would continue the law as it has been 
until there, it's possible to pass a new farm bill. And so in the 1973 omnibus farm legislation, is that when sort of this deal was struck between um, the nutrition and farm programs to put it all together in, in one big package? I mean, I guess that was the advent of the SNAP program. But is that also just the moment at, at which all of um, all of these programs were put together? Yeah, uh, the the food stamp program was actually reauthorized and um, it had existed um, some during, uh, for a few years during the, the depression in the 1930s, but it was brought back um, in 1964. But yeah, it became part of the, this omnibus farm bill in 1973. And that was part of the purpose of that was to create a, a piece of legislation all linked uh, around food and farm, but to, you know, create a political coalition that would support all of the various aspects of of it. it. Yeah. And I know the, the, the food stamp program was created at that time because there was a a tour of areas of the country where hunger um, was particularly acute and sort of this tour inspired lawmakers to come together around uh, the, the SNAP program, around the, around the food stamp program? Uh, well, these, these things tend to be more than one story. During the um, Kennedy, but especially during the Johnson administration, there was a great deal of attention to poverty. So it was a central, addressing poverty issues was a central core to the um, the agenda of that Democratic administration, the Johnson administration. And so the food stamps was part of that. It was one of the component pieces of addressing poverty in in, in multiple ways. I don't know specifically about this tour that you're talking about. It may well be the case, and I haven't read the specific history. Of, I've looked at it from other angles. but uh, I just wonder, was hunger actually worse in that moment, um, or was there more attention brought to it? Oh, well, you know, it's the combination of increasing prosperity in the 1960s in general in the economy and then discovery of people who are not partaking in that. And it's also wrapped up in uh, some of the civil rights activities. So I think it's, you know, part of that cycle of discovering continuing poverty at a time when there's growing prosperity in the economy more broadly. What would you say just right now, what are the major risks of like just not having a farm bill between today and December 31st? Um, do you like from the agency perspective, are are there things that are going to be put on hold um, like from an operational standpoint? What shifts for you all today? I mean, USDA is funded through a separate appropriations process, so that's not um, it doesn't affect the agency operations, it affects whether or not some programs can be implemented. I think because there are are a number of programs that are relatively smaller and often are then reauthorized with retroactive funding, it becomes less urgent to pass the bill immediately when there are big differences of view about what how to go forward from a you know, on the policy side. But in general, it's a relatively uneventful, unless you happen to be a person who participates in programs that are not to be funded. 
So there will be delays in program implementation, possibly, right. whether that's a grant program or um, some of the conservation programs, et cetera. But I guess EQIP does have the advantage of uh, yeah, having funding, funding. That, and which is great. Those who already have contracts under other kinds of conservation programs, they continue to receive the payments that are part of the contract that they're already in. But if someone wants to apply new to those programs, that'll have to go on hold and the same with rural development programs and um, these foreign uh, market access programs. They're not able to fully fund um, those operations. But there are a number of individual programs that will have to go on hold, but with the expect, well, anticipating that they will be refunded when the new bill passes. But it's not without impact, but it's not the mm-hmm. stark impact that I think that people sometimes imagine. And I think the chances of I mean the dairy the dairy one is is the one that always sort of weighs heavily on the 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 deadline you know when when this really needs to get done because having to implement that um permanent law dairy program would be very expensive and and outside the the sort of policy uh, agreement of the of the of these days that we we don't uh, support, provide that kind of price support to commodities anymore and so it would be quite a shift in approach. Well, Anne, thank you so much. This has been very helpful. Uh, thanks so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to make sure we, we covered? Yeah, I th- well, I just would want to reiterate the, that although there are some impacts for some programs, and I don't want to minimize how difficult that can be for people who participate and depend on those programs, but I also wouldn't want listeners to walk away thinking that we're on, you know, a cliff's edge here and uh, the process continues forward and um, there's either extension or agreement and um, programs then are, are refunded. So it's it's not the first time this has happened. All right. Well, we will um, be keeping track of how that process goes. Hopefully we'll see something new by, by the end of the year. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about the history of USDA programs and the impacts of an expired farm bill, check out today's show notes. You can also join Team Farm Bill to take action and help us get a farm bill reauthorized by texting Farm Bill to 40649. We'll have a link to take action in the show notes for today. And also, you can figure out how to take action by checking out our new Instagram at Young Farmers Podcast. Your to do for this week is to vote this coming Tuesday. It's an important way to make sure your voice is represented during the farm bill process. I have already voted. I just went right to my board of elections, did my ballot early. It's done, taken care of, no stress next Tuesday. If you haven't already, please write us a review. We would love to hear your thoughts, good or bad. We want to hear from you. It's important to us. Give us some feedback. Thanks to Radio Kingston for the use of this space. This podcast was edited by Hannah Beal. Talk to you next week.